Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today we actually have a great episode for you guys. Unfortunately, however, the internet connection was not great. During this podcast, we lost a little bit of the audio quality. However, I thought it was such a good recording and I was so happy to have Zan Barksdale on the podcast for this one that I wanted to bring it to you guys anyway. I really hope that I'm able to bring him back in the future for another podcast, but I didn't want to waste this one. I know there's a lot of great things that you guys can gleam off this podcast, especially for our catchers. Go ahead and take a listen to to it try to bear with the audio there's some great points and it does clean up in a few spots so stick with it and we'll see you guys in the next podcast thanks for joining us here and i always appreciate the support in the name of overhead athletics podcast where we cover rehabilitation biomechanics human movement and optimizing human performance hey everybody welcome back to the podcast today i'm joined by a catching expert little different. We've talked to motor learning specialists. We've talked to rehabilitation professionals. And today we're talking to Zan Barksdale. Zan is a former player who's now a coach. He's coached uh, at Louisville. He played baseball at Ole Miss and he's played some professional baseball as well. And his specialty is really in training catchers um, and coaching baseball at the highest level. So welcome to the podcast here, Zan. Max, thanks for having me. I appreciate you inviting me on. And uh, uh, you have a lot of nice things to say, but honestly, I'm looking forward to learning from you. you got a lot of degrees on your wall, and I know you do a lot of good things, so I'm looking forward to <laughs> They're uh, not all mine. as well. <laughs> They're not all mine. You don't have to my, tell people that. That's okay. My fiancés are over here, so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so, guilty um, by association. Yeah, I put my. I said, all right, I'll put mine on this side. We'll put yours over here. She's an occupational therapist, so it's pretty. We got we got the uh, therapy duo over here. There you go. So talk to me a little bit, because you have some unique experience in that you've played baseball at probably the most vast. Um, I guess you have the most vast experience in terms of level of play as a player yourself. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that and how that interplays with your coaching, because you went from the junior college level um, to a really large Division One school in the SEC and then on to professional baseball from there. And you've also coached at, at multiple schools. So, um, you know, what have you garnered, I guess, or what have you taken from that experience? Well, that, that's a very good question. And I definitely appreciate you asking, because I do feel like um, I've been at a lot of different levels between coaching and playing, um, and I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of different uh, things happen at different levels. That w- whether it be with USA baseball in the summer or coaching in college or playing professionally, um, I, I think the first thing that I'd like to point out is, yeah, even though I played at a, a, a big Division one professionally, I have never claimed to be the greatest player or greatest catcher on earth. Um, I, I feel like I've, I've, I've really excelled in the coaching side of it uh, much more than my playing career. Um, so with that said, I, I do think that I learned a lot of lessons playing. And, and to kind of briefly recap on what you said, uh, playing a small high school, I tore my ACL my junior year, so I, I wasn't recruited heavily. I wasn't one of these big-time recruits. I was a senior in high school wearing a giant knee brace. Um, so I went to a junior college, which for me was an excellent – uh, decision. I played at Holmes Community College where uh, I developed and had an opportunity to move on. Then I spent a couple of years at Ole Miss. Uh, after two years there, I signed a contract with the Braves, uh, played in four or five different levels there, I think, uh, and then got into coaching. 
where I spent uh, five years at the University of Louisville, and then I spent four years at East Tennessee State. Um, and after I got out of the, the coaching, the college coaching side of it, I got involved with USA Baseball, uh, and I've worked with those guys as young as 13 or 14, all the way up to college age guys. Um, and I still do a, a little bit of work with some different pro guys in pro ball. Um, but yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a lot of different levels and a lot of different areas. Um, and I do think that's kind of helped shape uh, a lot of the way that I look at things. You know, you don't always communicate with a 13 or 14 year old the same way you would communicate with a 21 or 22 year old. Uh, yes, are the mechanics the same? Yeah, for the most part. Um, but what I found is, is really different is the communication styles, the learning styles. Um, and that's something that I've really tried to adapt uh, to how I work with guys and how I teach. I, I try to explain it to where, uh, you know, anybody can understand or anybody can relate. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of have to let the player dictate uh, how rapidly they're willing to, to move on, depending on how quickly they pick up uh, the material. Absolutely. What would you say is your hierarchy of, of coaching? Because the human body is the human body. You're going to move very similar if you move well as an adult that you did as a child. And we, we see a lot of the stuff online now is like, look at this two-year-old squatting or three-year-old squatting all the way down. You should be able to do that as an adult as well, which is, which is absolutely true. Um, but as far as baseball coaching, you know, playing at the college level, you see that the emphasis placed on catching a lot of times is insufficient, especially I played at the NAI level and at the NAI level, they don't have the funds to have a catching coach, a pitching coach, an infield coach, you know, an outfield coach, a hitting coach and all a coach for every, every domain. And with catching being, um, being so unique, what are the, what are the things that we're missing out on, I guess, just from a general practice structure that, that kind of fit into your hierarchy? Like, hey, here's the low-hanging fruit, and, and here's where we need to start with our, with our catchers because they are so unique. Absolutely, and I think that's a great place to start with it because the, the, the position is unique and the position is different. Um, you know, we have to train catchers differently than we train pitchers or we train corner infielders or corner outfielders because the position requires a different, a different skill set. Um, I, I think the best example that I can give with this mobility and ankle mobility. Um, I typically work with guys who are a little bit older. They're, they're later on in high school or they're in the college. Um, I, I've just started working uh, with a couple of younger guys who are in that 12 or 13 year old range. Um, and, and like those guys, and kind of like you mentioned, I definitely think you train the athlete first. You know, we don't get don't get too deep. Let's let's make them a uh, more athletic, uh, more well-balanced athlete before we get, you know, super specific beyond that. However, one of the things that I've noticed that just doesn't get the attention that it needs is hip mobility and ankle mobility, um, especially the catchers. You know, there's, there's so many guys that, that they don't throw the way they, they want to, to, they don't receive the way they want to, the way they want to or the way they'd like to, um, simply because they can't get into a good position because they're super tight in their hips or they're super tight in their ankles and their body just doesn't allow them uh, like they want to. So uh, uh, I, I've... I've even presented on it a couple times. times. I, I think it needs to change in baseball, and I think it's getting better, but we're not all the way there yet, is if you go to a team's practice or watch a team before a game, when they're stretching and when they're getting loose and they're doing their dynamic warm-up, for the most part, everybody's doing the exact same thing, uh, which to me kind of blows my mind. I, I, now, I don't think we need, if we have 40 players on the team, I don't think we necessarily need 40 different routines, uh, but I think we can definitely group guys in similar categories that say, hey, these guys need a little bit more emphasis on or hip mobility or arm care or whatever it is 
uh, and kind of, you know, generate a routine that's built for them and it focuses on what they need. Uh, so that, for example, um, our pitchers may not be working on the exact same thing that our, our catchers are working on. Uh, but I believe that the catchers should, should spend time on arm care, just like all the position players um, and, and pitchers as well. But they got to spend a lot of time on hip mobility, ankle mobility. And I think we can start with changing the routine before the game and kind of trying to tailor it to what the individual needs and not just saying, hey, everybody, let's go all through the same routine uh, and treat everybody with the cookie cutter approach. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, that's a really interesting approach um, because it gets neglected and you get guys that are that that really do need something unique like i just had a catcher and i've worked with him in the past um great kid he's a senior in high school he's on that recruiting route right now and he just had hip surgery because he had a cam lesion in his hip he had a ton of impingement in his hip and what he does for his warm-up is going to have to be different than you know, the other catchers are the people going down down the dynamic warm-up line. If you have him do lateral lunges to the side or these extreme rotations through the hip, he's going to have problems because he's going to impinge himself. Um, and now now that he's had surgery, hopefully that'll, that'll free him up a little bit. But especially for catching because, um, you know, you're down in the deep squat position all the time. You have to be able to move laterally in that position. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point. And I had never even placed too much thought into dynamic warm-up difference uh, or variation for for catchers, but that's a you know that's a great that's a great comment because I'm always thinking about that for for pitchers. You know what do my throwing you know my guys that are throwing the ball a hundred times at a high intensity need to do different than the guys who have to field and throw it three times a game type of thing. Sure. So the, the approach that I take with that, and I'd love to get your feedback uh, as well. I, I think what works best as a coach or an instructor or a therapist or somebody in the medical field, I think for the most part, we, we can guide our players or we can, you know, guide our catchers or, or any of the players um, and, and, and get input from them as well. So, for example, if we want our players to go through, uh, let's just say each day they have five hip mobility exercises. Okay. And I'm just making this up off the top of my head. Well, maybe the first three are directed by the coach or the therapist or the instructor. And they say, Hey, these are the ones I really want us working on. When we ask the player for input and say, and, and kind of let them get some ownership of developing their program, I feel like we got a lot better results. So maybe the coach, you know, directs the first three and then maybe the last two, which is 40% of the program, we get input from the player and say, Hey, Hey, which exercises do you really feel? Which ones do you feel like work well for you? So a great example with the guy you used that that's had an injury or maybe has some uh, some mobility issues or some impingements or whatever it might be. Uh, the exercises that he does might not be the same as the exercises that I do, might not be the same as the exercises that you do. So what we're doing, we're accomplishing a couple things with that. Yes, we're, we're, we're allowing guys to get work in, um, but we're also getting their feedback so we get ownership and buy-in from them. Uh, but also, man, who's to tell uh, the player that this stretch is not better than that one or this exercise is not better than that one? Uh, because I, I am a firm believer that, you, you, you know, we can make blanket statements, um, but it's also good to get their feedback and, and listen to them. And if, if, if they say, hey, this exercise, uh, it checks the boxes that I like, then boom, we add that one in. And that might not be the same for everybody. Yeah, it's all, it's all about options. Um, you know, the way I've thought about um, especially flexibility in catchers is basically like if you're wearing a tight pair of jeans and you can't squat to the ground, if that's your mobility or your flexibility, um, 
you're truly limiting yourself. You're you're operating like basically inside of an exoskeleton, um, and you're you're losing out on on potential solutions to the issues that you face in the game. Hey, there's a there's an outside pitch, and I gotta I gotta slide over, and then I gotta back pick this guy at first or whatever it is. If I'm operating inside of a, a constrained environment based on just my movement capability, I'm really limiting myself by getting more flexible, having better range of motion, I'm opening up options that I have as an athlete, which is even more important when you're speeding the game up as you go up levels of play. You might get away with that at 12, 12 U baseball when you got to throw it 70 feet to first base. But when you're throwing at 90 feet and everybody runs a lot faster, it's a different, it's a different ball game. You know, I, I absolutely agree 100%. And I think one of the things that, one of the principles that I try to live by and teach by and coach with is I don't believe in necessarily the quick fix. Like, uh, hey, if you come to my camp, I'm not going to promise, hey, gain 10 miles an hour in the next two days. Like, I, I don't do that thing. I don't really believe in the quick fixes and the, the overselling and the snake oil. Um, however, I will say a lot of the worked with make some really incredible improvements over a very short period of time when it comes to their body and it comes to their flexibility and mobility uh, and stability as well. Because there's so many players that, that, that haven't worked on it before. They haven't been in, in a real, pro, what I would call a real program uh, that has good design behind it. Uh, like I said, most 13, 14 year olds, they're doing the same. They're even doing the same static stretching that we were doing 25 years ago, uh, where now we watch the older guys, the high school, college, big league guys, you know, most of them are getting loose with dynamic warm up, uh, but you still go watch a youth game and they're just still doing static stretching before the game. And they're not really treating their body, um, you know, with as much, uh, they're not using all the information available, I think. Um, so when you put a younger guy on a proper program that addresses his weak areas, man, holy cow, they can get better really quickly. Like I mentioned a little while ago, I just started working with a younger guy, a guy that's a little bit younger than I usually work with, and he's super tight through his hamstrings and hips. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just how his body is at 12 or 13 years old. And once we kind of got him on a real routine, within, and he's been great. He's worked hard. He's put in the work. Absolutely, I give him credit for that. But man, he's made he's made some pretty incredible gains uh, very quickly just because he's able to get in positions that he wasn't able to get in before. Yeah, and it could you know those young guys. It's always can be strength as well, because I see a lot of a lot of kids across the age distribution. And it, it's interesting how the problems that you deal with in your 12-year-olds can be vastly different than the, the issues you deal with in your 16-year-olds because the 16-year-olds may be more functionally strong or the 18-year-olds may be more functionally strong, but they haven't, they haven't done any stretching or any mobilization in years, and now they're stiff and they can't touch their toes and they just had a big growth spurt, whereas these 11-year-old kids may have better motion and they just can't control it or they don't have access to it um, readily. Uh, and I, and I think that's, you know, I've always had the, the opinion that like you should get looked at once a year minimum. If you're an athlete by a, um, a movement professional who knows what they're doing, whether that's your strength and conditioning coach, they, they really got to know what they're doing. But um, you know, I advocate a lot for a sports physical therapist to do a screen on you once a year. So, you know, hey, these are the things that I'm working on. Um, these are the things that I may need to do a little bit differently in my program. And that way, you know, I have an approach. And if you're not getting 
if you're not getting assessed at least once a year just to make sure you've met some requisite levels of flexibility and strength um, as well as you know rotator cuff strength I, I think I think you're doing yourself a disservice as an athlete and I see guys at the at higher levels of the game that never never get looked at division one baseball and you know I won't say what programs are where but I, I see guys come back and they're like yeah I've you know I've never done any flexibility uh, training I've never done any mobile mobility training or mobilization and it's like you can't touch your toes you can't get into a squat position it's crazy yeah yeah I, I absolutely agree and well I feel like I have taken the time and I've tried to learn more than maybe some coaches out there uh, about mobility and the, the kinesiology and anatomy and, and that whole side of it I'm by no means an expert, you know, so I, I absolutely defer to guys like you and other specialists um, and, and always encourage players to get checked out by a professional. Because look, at the end of the day, I, I, I may know something about the topic. Uh, and I, I know a few key things, but I'm spending most of my time studying catching specific things, whether it be, you know, the mechanics or what are the trends, what's going on. Um, it, you know, a portion of my time gets developed or gets spent on, on the human and how it moves and, and the movement patterns. Um, but that's not the majority of my time. So there's always somebody out there that's better. And that's one thing that I think coaches need to do. Um, and I've always encouraged guys to expand their network. You know, if you go to a, a coaching conference or a clinic or you're at a, a state convention or where, whatever it may be, meet as many guys as possible because, man, you can always learn from other guys and talk to other guys. And that's why just like you and I getting on a podcast like this, uh, I'm grateful because now, uh, hey, hey, I might hit you up after this when I have a question, and now I have one more contact in my in my book that I can reach out to and ask. So uh, I'm a firm believer in expanding your network and, and, and using professionals uh, that are kind of outside your scope of knowledge. That, that's one of the things that's in the amateur baseball landscape now. A lot of players, a lot of the, the, the elite players, um, you know, to use that buzzword, are they do have kind of a team built around them where – they're, they have their team and they have their, their coaches they go to, but they also may have a, a, a specific skills coach. Maybe it's a catching coach. Maybe it's a hitting coach. Maybe it's a pitching coach. Um, some of these guys are seeing nutritionists. Some of these guys are seeing, seeing physical therapists. Maybe it's a chiropractor. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but the point is these guys are building teams around them because they understand how important it is to take care of my body. Um, I think there was an article that came out a year or two ago, and, and this is not the, the best example, but it is an example where LeBron James, I think they said he spends like over a million dollars on his body a year between nutritionists and therapy and therapy. Now, whether that works or not, that's maybe a different conversation. But the, the, the point is he has bought into uh, investing in his body and investing in the team that is around his body. And well, I know that's not right for every, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old. Uh, we do need to understand that what the, what the elite guys are doing is they're taking care of their bodies. They're reaching out to professionals who understand what's happening. Um, and they're getting their feedback and implementing their programs. Yeah. You touched on a lot of, a lot of important things there. Um, and interesting things but as the as the coach you're the one that's handling a lot of this stuff guys are coming to you that are 15 years old and and you know they don't necessarily have access to a sports psychologist and a nutritionist that are right there so you you know you're handling a lot of these questions which is the job of the coach and and i think we overlook that a lot especially from the medical perspective and 
I'm communicating with doctors and orthopedic surgeons all the time, but also the rehabilitation professionals. And it's like, hold on, the, the coaching job is quite a bit more difficult than than uh, you guys make it seem. It's not these uh, lowly coaches. A lot of times is is the the way they're kind of um, alluded to. But it's like, well, the coach is is almost like the the master puppeteer, and we're kind of the other tools in the toolbox. Um, but Moving on from that, just going into some catching specific stuff, which I know people are going to tune in to, to listen to a little bit of this. You've put out a lot of great um, material and resources and information, um, but where do coaches need to start? Because like I said in the beginning, I think this is an overlooked aspect of the game, and I never caught myself, but you know, I look at the structure of how a lot of practices are laid out, and I see the two groups that are neglected the most as the pitchers and the catchers. Um, and there's a, there's so much that can be done. Like it's not about, you know, catching in ground balls. There's, there's a ton of things that, that go into, um, training a catcher because I'd argue that the pitcher is the most important and shortly followed by that is the catcher. Um, as far as the game, you got to have a catcher that's able to catch the ball number one, but be able to frame pitches, steal your strikes, block balls from getting to the backstop, you know, kind of command the field as well. I mean, they have a lot, they have a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And that's a great question. You know, where do coaches start? Holy cow. But as soon as you start, you know, you're not even halfway done with your question and the wheels are turning like, Oh my gosh, where do we start? There's so many, so many different things going on. So I, I think the best way maybe is I hope it's not too complicated, but I, I like to almost break it down into two subcategories. I think one, you have uh, the, the physical component, you have the mental component as well, um, which, which both are important. And it's hard to say which one's more important. You know, maybe you have the guys that say mental, you know, is 95% of the game or, or whatever. Um, but, but they're two different things and they, they're very different. And sometimes at different ages and different levels, you know, certain things get neglected. Uh, for example, I think, uh, again, as I watch more younger baseball, and I say younger, pre-high school, and the reason I start watching more pre-high school guys is because that's where the recruiting is going. You know, the recruiting is sped up. Um, it's not, it's not, no longer are you just getting recruited as a junior or senior and signing after your senior year. Now guys are getting and earlier, so uh, just by default, you start paying attention to younger guys. So with the younger guys, one of the things that, that I've noticed is even the guys who are you know, really good baseball players and really good catchers, a lot of times they're behind, you know, and I, I say uh, with baseball IQ, I don't mean mentally, I don't mean they're not smart, I don't mean they're not intelligent, but with just knowing the game and understanding the game and understanding the strategy behind the game, um, I think we need to do a better job teaching these guys, particularly at a younger level. Uh, if you ask most high school coaches or ask most college coaches, uh, I've run this poll on Twitter and I've had conversations, I think it's safe to say that most people agree with player gets to you, where is he most efficient? Um, I don't care if you ask high school coaches or college coaches. I think most of them say their knowledge ball IQ. They're just, you know, their ability to know what's going on and know what they're supposed to do and know how the game is supposed to be played. That's where a lot of guys um, are behind. And part of that's just the structure of amateur baseball now where guys are spending a, a lot more time playing games versus practicing. Um, you know, so so teaching the game, teaching the strategy, teaching uh, all the things involved with that, from from bunt defenses to how it is, uh, to w when is a steal situation, when is a sacrifice bunt, 
that that's where we kind of need to attack it on the on the baseball IQ side is just teaching the game. Um, and then then we have the other physical side, which I think I think most catching coaches would probably agree. Uh, the three most important skills, like you mentioned earlier, is, is receiving. I think I think everybody says receiving is number one. I don't think that's going to go away. Um, I think blocking is probably number two, and throwing is probably number three. Um, a lot of times, you know, as you're going through the recruiting process or you're going through the tryout process, uh, throw what gets you noticed or might be. Um, you know, the thing that they're writing down because the coaches have a stopwatch or a pop time and it's easy to measure. It's a lot harder to measure, uh, you know, blocking ability or receiving skills. Um, so I think I think more focus naturally gets drawn to the throwing just because it can easily be measured and a number can be associated with it. Uh, but the receiving is, is the most important. I don't think we can argue that. Um, and if there's anybody out there listening and, and they're already preparing their counter argument that they're going to say, well, in the big leagues, you know, the electronic strike zone is coming. Uh, I would absolutely agree that the electronic strike zone is coming and the robo umps, if you want to call them that. Uh, but, but that I don't I don't think that's going to happen at any point, probably or the near or midterm future at amateur baseball, just because of the costs. Um, so even if that is implemented at the big league level, well, the guys that are in college, the guys that are in high school, the guys that are younger than that, they still have to be really good receivers, um, even if in the strike zone. Uh, or even if the major league strike zone changes because of you know electronic uh, technology, uh, the younger guys are going to have to be able to to excel receiving and be able to not only just catch the ball but catch the ball well. well. And that's that's a there's a very big distinction there uh, that again I see a lot of times with younger guys they think that I caught the ball I did my job, and you know when you talk to the older guys the really skilled receivers there's a big big difference between. Uh, you know, catching the ball and catching the ball well and being able to manipulate it and being able to present it. So I know that was, I know that was a long answer to a short question, uh, but if I had to break it down yeah, into two awesome. areas, the baseball IQ, I would start with that. And then the, the, the physical stuff, I'd start with the receiving, blocking and throwing and then kind of move on from there. Let's, let's unpack what you just went through because there was a ton of great information in there. The first thing is, abs like, I absolutely agree as far as, Robo lumps and the electronic strike zone, because if you look at radar guns, how long have we used radar guns for count, like measuring every pitch in the MLB? It's, you know, mm -hmm. been a long time. We don't even see that at every level of college yet. You know, I remember going when I played, it was like going to, uh, you know, the perfect game, uh, the new perfect game complex they had just put down. And I, I want to say it was Georgia or wherever, somewhere down south on our spring trip it was like, Oh wow! You know we actually—they're actually measuring it every single throw. Otherwise, you have a guy sitting behind the dog or behind the backstop doing it. So we haven't even seen radar guns, um, which is much more cost-effective. Um, they're not at every every youth game. They're not set up automatically at every youth stadium. And those things are, yeah, many many years in advance. Now you're talking about technology that's at a completely different level in terms of the cost. It's just, it's not going to be even, I'm, I'll be surprised if it's even at the college level for, for quite a while, just because they may use it at, you know, the, in the super regionals or, or something like that, or the college world series, but just to get it for every, every game and then to have somebody upkeep it, that's, you know, that's a, it's a big cost, especially with baseball, which at the college level just doesn't bring in the amount of money that the football or basketball programs bring in. 
Great point. And I love the you analogy know. about a radar gun. I mean, that, you're exactly right. Uh, radar guns now, they're very affordable for the most part. I mean, I, th I still think the stalkers are probably the gold standard. They're going to be, you know, uh, 1500 bucks or so, maybe a little bit more than that now. Um, but then you have very good other methods like a pocket, uh, pocket radar, um, you know, for, for three or 400 bucks, you get something that's uh, very acceptable um, level of precision, you, you know, with that, uh, you know, it goes all over the place, you know, so how would we get the technology to have the automated strike zone and amateur baseball? Um, yes. And, and the upper levels of division one, a lot of the schools, you know, have a track man now, uh, definitely not all of them, or maybe even the majority of them, but there are more that are implementing that type of technology. But when you talk about the, you know, the, the, I don't hate to say the bottom uh, 250 schools, but the bottom 250 schools, that's a very big expense for them. And it's not just buying the hardware. You know, if you have a, an advanced system like an automated strike zone, you have to have somebody to man that strike zone as well and make the adjustments uh, and make sure it's calibrated. You know, that's probably not something that the pitching coach is doing uh, on a Thursday afternoon getting ready. You need a dedicated staff to run those to run those systems and run those programs. Uh, so now you're talking about not just the expense of the hardware, but you're also talking about uh, the human element being involved as well. So it's just not cost effective now. And, you know, I, I would imagine it'll be uh, long after I'm gone that something like that would ever get implemented, you know, at a, at a widespread basis like youth and amateur baseball. Yeah, let me let me backtrack a little bit to what you said a few minutes ago regarding baseball IQ. Um, I felt like I was extremely fortunate in my whole career that I had really uh, great coaches, very knowledgeable coaches, um, you know, up and through the ranks. And my dad was my coach when I was younger. And, and my dad was kind of this baseball genius. Um, you know, he played, I believe it was NAI, but it, the school was Saginaw Valley State University, which is a Division II school now. I think it may have been NAI when he played. I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, his he learned from good coaches um, when he was younger. And then he continued to coach high school baseball and those sorts of things up through. And then he ended up coaching, coaching us. And he was never really the head coach because he just wanted to coach the baseball side of things. But, you know, one thing that I really remember him doing, and I – and I didn't think a lot of it. It was just the normal at the time. But then seeing other programs and, and seeing things on different teams, I, I noticed, wow, there's a big difference here, which was like we had dedicated time to go over basically baseball IQ type stuff, situations. We went over what you do when you're on this base, what happens here. And we, it was drilled into our head, and everybody had to understand it. Um, and then you had to implement it. It was just like it was – so repetitive in terms of mm -hmm. it's just drilled into your head the cardinal rules of base. here's the cardinal rules of baseball here's what you do when you're on third base and what i've noticed and i talked to peter caliendo on the podcast either his podcast or mine because we did we did an episode each we talked about this which was you've got guys that are in the mlb in, in minor league baseball and in college baseball who don't even really know how to bunt or run the bases and they've gotten to the level because they're such a good athlete and they're such a good talent and they they have uh this projectability where they could they have a ceiling that's up here but they they don't necessarily understand the the um intricacies of, of baseball iq and the the fundamentals of the game as far as you i mean you can steal so many bases and so many runs from guys just by running the bases properly 
But going into, and, and I keep jumping back to the, uh, the catching aspect of things, but you know, the catcher-pitcher dynamics are extremely important as well, especially with the catcher. He's got to be able, he's the, you know, commander of the field. He's looking at the whole field. He's got to, he's got to really understand the game at a, at a level that you maybe don't have to understand if you're, um, if you're a left fielder. But that's certainly an area that, you know, as a coach, I think um, we need to place, place more emphasis on is just, Hey, baseball IQ, let's go through and let's break down all of these different situations and then let's practice these situations and put some time pressure on us, put put some um, contextual uh, some contextual environments around us where it's game like and we have to practice. We have to we have to work through these scenarios, but you know, we also have to understand what what the goal is too and um, you know, hey, I, if I see this, I'm reacting in this way. If I see that, I'm reacting in, in that way. Um, as opposed to, hey, I'm just going to rely on pure athleticism and we're going to hope we, we throw our mitts at them and win the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember having, uh, I'll try to keep this PG, but I remember having a, a few oh moments in my career. And uh, I remember I had a few of them when I got to, when I got to Ole Miss and uh, we're doing things and we're going over things and I'm kind of scratching my head. Like, how did I not know that? Like, like super basic and super simple and it makes perfect sense when it's explained to you and you, and you realize it, but I've never been taught this before. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Um, I, I think a good, the, the best example is we were talking about bunt coverages and in this situation, you know, when, when is the opposing team trying to bunt it to first base? When are they trying to bunt it to third base? Uh, and, and when you sit down Okay, that makes sense. And it prepares you for the game when you understand what the other team is trying to do. Um, but for a young guy, and young catchers especially, because that's anytime I start working with a new guy and we kind of start going over the, the mental game type stuff or the baseball IQ type stuff, you know, I usually ask him, I'll say, hey, all right, there's a runner on first base. The opposing team is going to sacrifice him over. Where is the opposing team going to bunt the ball? More than nine times out of ten, they say down the third base line. And – you know, and I try to walk them through it and talk to them. So I say, okay, well, let's imagine this. There's a runner on first base. Nobody else is on. What's the first baseman doing? Well, he's holding him on. Okay. What's the third baseman doing? He's creeping in. Okay. So if the third baseman's creeping in and the first baseman's 90 feet away, where does it make more sense to bunt? Well, we're going to bunt the ball to first base. That's what, that's what the rules of baseball tell you to do. But I remember as a player, you know, not knowing that until I'm, I was much older than, than I, I like to admit. Um, but that's an area that, man, so many young guys just – they just struggle with because they've never been taught. And again, I wouldn't necessarily say not their fault, but they've never been taught it before. You can't expect somebody to know something they've never been taught. Um, but those are absolutely the things that we need to work on, guys. we got to teach them the game, uh, teach them, you know, how it's supposed to be played, what the opposing team's trying to do. It, it helps you a lot when you have a better understanding of, okay, when is the opposing team trying to steal second base? When are they trying to, to steal a base here? Versus, uh, again, you ask a young guy, hey, when is the other team going to steal you know, when they have a fast guy in first base? And it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, but that, So th those are a couple of uh, you know, broad, broad examples, but I think it is a good example of, of how we can help the younger guys you know, get the, uh, uh, start to learn the game. Yeah, and how fun is running laps in an indoor gym? I mean, that's what a lot of these teams are doing right now, especially these fed ball teams. It's like we practice year-round. It's like, well, 
kind of you run laps you know around the gym and do these um ladder drills or something for 50 percent of your practice in the winter in the gym because you know i'm here in michigan it's cold you know we're we're inside for at least half of the at least half the year it's like that whole time can be spent on situational learning teaching your guys what happened okay let's go let's go to here let's walk down to first base we got an infield setup okay what are you going to do as a base runner okay now we come until we have our catchers okay we're, what are we going to do as a catcher in this scenario just like you're saying and we're indoors it's like there's there's a lot of skill work that you can do indoors but there's a lot there's a lot you can do in terms of situational learning as opposed to working on some sort of conditioning once a week that's not going to make any impact on you know, maybe psychologically it helps. I don't know, but but beyond you know the minor the minor psychological benefit of saying, oh, I've been working hard. Um, and we're we're wasting so much of our indoor practice time, and we you know we've talked about the baseball IQ side of things, and I liked your tiered list there because I, even though I only really work on the on the throwing aspect of things, I believe the receiving aspect is the most important. Um, for catchers because as a pitcher I realized the benefit of it and I even remember in college we had a, a younger catcher who had a great arm and you know there was a great likelihood he was going to throw guys out you know he you know most games I don't I don't know how many games he went without throwing at least one guy out but he threw a lot of guys out but we had another uh upperclassman who um interestingly enough like we actually got into a a little bit of a fight like my my first fall ball season as a freshman he was a junior or something but uh just phenomenal receiving and he didn't throw a lot of guys out didn't have the most powerful arm in the world but just loved to throw for him because i'm like every time i throw to him i get 15 18 more strikes in, in any game and it no balls got to the backstop it seemed like it was just like boom um and he was just like everything was so it, it was just a lot of finesse um you know, it didn't throw a lot of guys out. I'm like, I'll take those guys stealing. I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take some of that. As long as he's stealing me strikes, I get ahead in the count. Um, you know, I, I have a pitcher's count instead of a hitter's count, and I'm gonna get a strikeout here or there stolen, and I'm putting guys on their back foot. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I want to always backtrack on what I said earlier. I just want to clarify. You know, when I talk about probably receiving and blocking being the most important, and receiving and, and throwing being third, I don't think those are you know one, two, and three. I think they're one A, one B, and one C. All very important, um, and I think almost even more so at the lower levels. Which let's be honest, it's the majority of baseball, and there's only thirty big league teams. Um, but there's a lot of high schools, a lot of colleges, a lot of travel teams, a lot of, a lot of younger guys is and it is and it can still be a very big part of those teams uh success from the catching standpoint i think a great example is if, if you have a high school if you coach a high school team and you have a catcher that has a plus plus arm and he really throws well that that, that shuts down a lot of attempts um again at the at the college level you know everybody's a little bit better everybody's a little bit more advanced the, the game's a little bit faster in general um but at the lower levels like i say high school for example Holy cow! If you've got a catcher that throws, you know, really well, that that can take away a, an entire part of the opposing team's strategy. Um, and you don't, you know, even the best throwers in high school, they don't throw the most guys out because they have so few attempts. Um, if you have a really good guy behind the plate, uh, it's almost like, okay, we're, that's just we're not trying that today. We're not, we're not even. 
Um, so, so there is a lot of value, I think, in having uh, a guy who throws really well. And I, I do think I think different skill sets can kind of you know move ahead of others at different age groups. You know, if, if you're 12 or 13 uh, and you're just now getting acclimated to a big field. Well, everybody's playing on the bigger field for the first time. We're probably not throwing out a whole lot of guys at second base anyway. So maybe at 12 or 13, blocking might be a little bit more important than throwing is. But then you get a little bit older and you get to high school. And again, I'm not going to say blocking is not important, but I will say if you have a catcher with a plus-plus arm, he can kind of eliminate or shut down uh, you know, opposing team strategy on the bases. So at different ages, different skill sets, I think, kind of uh, you know, rise to the top. Uh, but, but no doubt, throwing is very important. I, I spend a lot of time talking about it. I'm interested in it. I like to research it and study it. Uh, and I like to watch what the best guys, you know, in the world do when they throw. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's certainly a good point. You know, the younger guys are going to throw more balls in the dirt. They're going to throw more balls around. And the higher level baseball you get into, the more precise and accurate pitchers are, the less balls you're going to have to worry about blocking, the less, the less honestly you know it's they throw faster and everything else but you know if you if you can steal 10 pitches in a in a seven inning game or a six inning game that could be a that could be a huge difference especially like yeah you're not going to throw a lot of guys out at at the younger at the younger ages with the way the base paths are and that sort of thing so that that certainly makes sense i always you know as a pitcher i always felt so much more comfortable throwing to um just throwing to those guys that could that could steal me strikes. And I felt like no matter what, like I felt like if I threw it around the zone, like it was going to look really good. And uh, I mean, we track, you know, you track your strikes, balls, you track everything like that. And, um, you know, I just, I ended up with like a lot less walks, um, even less hit by pitch because guys were getting in there and getting out of there faster, but certainly more strikeouts uh, because you're ahead in the count all the time. And, I mean, maybe you could uh, touch on this, but I always felt like posture as the catcher, like how you set up behind the behind the dish was a was a big factor because, like, I remember throwing to those guys that were, I don't know, smaller guys, but they made themselves really small where they were really the knees were in close, and you know you're in a you're in a count um, or you're in a situation where you don't even have a base runner on, and the knees are in close, and the catcher looks smaller, you know, perception wise to the umpire. I think that. I mean, my experience has been, I feel like that plays a big role. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, if you have any better statistics on that, because I'm going purely on, you know, anecdotal, but. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, and and I would say the stances and setups have probably been the hottest topic among the catching community over the past two to three years. Um, If you you look on the big leagues or you watch the guys on TV, there's a lot more of those guys that are utilizing a, a one knee down stance, you know, versus the traditional stance where both feet are on the ground and both knees are in the air. Um, guys have one knee down and, and, and they're in much different stances. And I, I know all your viewers might not be super into the catching side, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief, but I'll explain it briefly. The, the, the reason that most guys are doing that is because they're finding that they're better able to uh, steal strikes at the bottom of the strike zone which in the big leagues, those umpires, overall, they're really good. I know they catch you know a lot of heat on the internet or on Twitter whenever they miss a call, whenever they blow something, but overall, they're really good. Um, the, the pitches that they're like, or the, the direction they're likely to expand the strike zone is much more down than it is left and right. 
Um, if they miss a ball, two balls off the plate in the big league, that's like unheard of. Guys don't miss balls, two balls off the plate. However, where you can expand the strike zone as a catcher and pitcher is at the bottom of the strike zone. So guys are getting a little bit lower. Uh, they're still providing good targets. We're finding that guys are still able to block and throw out of these positions. I think, a, I think a lot of people may disagree with or may there may be some some pushback there, uh, but a lot of guys at the big league level are able to block and throw out of those stances. Um, maybe not everyone, but a lot of guys can. Um, and, and it puts them in a better position to receive the low strike. Now, I do think it's important to, uh, like I said, also talk about the differences between the big leagues and high school and younger. I would say typically in, in lower levels of baseball, when every game is not broadcast on TV and the umpires are may not getting electronic, uh, you know, strike zone reports after the game to let them know which pitches they missed and which ones they got correctly. Uh, I would say amateur umpires are more likely to expand the zone east and west or left and right uh, versus up and down sometimes because uh, they feel like they can get away with it. It's maybe harder to see from the dugouts, from the coach's perspective. Um, so, so is the strategy a little bit different? I would say a little bit. I don't think it's drastically different. I don't think we're playing completely different games, uh, but I do think, you know, strategically there are different approaches you can take at different levels. And for me, it makes sense at the big league level. Uh, hey, let's, let's steal everything off the bottom of the strike zone. Let's try to expand that as much as possible. Um, and in the college game as well, we, we absolutely want the low strike, no doubt about it. But I think there's more room to expand on the left and right side or the inside and outside of the plate. Uh, and, and get those strikes. So, uh, again, I'm not saying that the one knee stance does not work at the college level, just trying to explain, you know, why certain guys are adopting it and what they're doing. Uh, because, yes, stances are stances are, are, are very uh, heavily debated nowadays, and it, it's fun to listen to and it's fun to be a part of. Um, it's actually something I've, I've tried to pay attention to over the past year specifically, uh, watching different guys' stances and watching how they're setting up behind the plate and then recognizing, you know, hopefully how it uh, – receiving that makes sense from a visual perceptual model as far as low pitches because that's much more difficult especially as the ball's coming in faster to mm -hmm. determine the height of the pitch as opposed to that's yeah, way out there i can easily see the the trajectory of the ball there um you know as the umpire so that that certainly that certainly makes sense to me um as far as how we start to train our catchers, I mean, we've touched on a lot of things. Number one is let's make sure that you're able to acquire the positions that you need to acquire behind the plate and give yourself movement options from the mobility, stability, flexibility perspective of, hey, what positions can I get into um, to make sure that I have the most movement options as the catcher? And talked about how you can drastically alter your game in terms of understanding the game better and understanding the situations better because you're getting a step on everybody. I just like you were talking about with your example, it's like, all right, first baseman sitting back and they're going to bunt it down the first base line. I already know as a catcher, I've already got, I've already got half a step on that, on that bunt because I had a good idea of where it's going and it might not always end up going there, but the third baseman's got my back if it ends up going down that other, that other line. So baseball IQ, flexibility, strength, receiving, improving your ability to receive is certainly a big one. And I think it ties in closely with your ability to um, throw because a lot of times we're throwing dependent on the position or depending on the location of the pitch. If the pitch draws me a certain way, I'm going to have to 
alter how I move through the rest of the movement to complete a throw or a back pick or, you know, trying to throw somebody out stealing. Um, and that's really where I've, um, you know, I've spent time is on the, on the throwing side of thing. Most, mostly with guys who are, my pop time is really low and my velocity is really low down to second base. I need to try to cut that down. And a lot of times you're dealing with throwing mechanics that are way, way off. Um, but the ability to receive is always uh, intriguing to me, um, especially because you'll see catchers who are setting up in the middle and then they're reacting to a pitch and they're pushing them out of the strike zone at, at a high school level and below where they're, I, you know, they're pushing the ball out of the zone and they're, they're I don't know, reverse framing it. I don't know if you have a good term for that, but um, <laughs> how do we start to improve those, those guys? I mean, the, the low hanging, the low hanging fruit for those guys is certainly let's get your eyes checked first, right? Let's see an optometrist and make sure your, you know, vision is corrected if it needs to be. Cause I think a lot of times got kids aren't getting their eyes checked regularly enough and they, they're not seeing the ball as good as, as good as they should be. But from, you know, a visual perceptual side and, um, a reaction standpoint, what are, what are a few things that you're, that you're implementing? Well, I, I love the vision and reaction aspect of it. I think that's a really important thing that gets overlooked a lot. Um, for me, I, I would say the biggest principle is I want to incorporate uh, reaction training and visual training into our practices. Um, I, I think, again, the best example I can give is I, I get emailed very frequently from a parent who would say something along the lines of, um, hey, coach, my, my son blocks fine in practice. As soon as we get him to the games, he just doesn't block as well. There's a lot of balls going to the block stop. What do you think is going on? What can I do to help? Um, and my first, I always answer with a question. My question is, well, what percentage of your practice time does he know where the ball is coming? And so what I mean by that is typically when we go through blocking practice, uh, and, and this is throwing or, or blocking any skill, really, it's, it's just the general principle. Typically, it, it, especially at yo, long, younger levels, um, guys are doing blocking practice. Say, hey, I'm throwing 10 down the middle. Block these 10. Now I'm throwing 10 to your glove side. Go block those 10. Now I'm going to throw 10 to your arm side. Go. When we're completely eliminating the reaction and the decision-making aspect from the drill, uh, which is for, for a blocking for that drill is probably more important than the mechanical side. Uh, if you have average mechanics and above average uh, ability to read it and react, you're probably going to be better than the guy who has uh, above average mechanics and an average ability to read and react. Um, so I always ask guys, how much of it is predetermined? Like, hey, I'm throwing 10 in the dirt, down the middle, get ready to block it. Versus, hey, I'm going to throw you 10. Half are going to be in the air. Half are going to be in the dirt. You've got to read it and react. If it's in the air, I want you to receive it properly. If it's in the dirt, I want you to block it and recover it. Um, so I, I think, and again, that's a that, that's a, a, a big umbrella. There's a lot of different things we can talk about in that. But I think it's just an important concept to understand that inside the training environment, we have to uh, have guys react more we have to have them make decisions because um, we're asking them to make decisions in a game and a lot of times especially at younger levels guys just never practice that at all uh, I, you know if we we're talking about hitting it would be the same idea as hey uh, if, if, if all your batting practice is just taking a pp fast miles an hour in a cage and now i ask you to step into a game and a guy's throwing 85 nine he's mixing up change-ups and curveballs and sliders that's two completely different 
going on there. Uh, it's one to work on the mechanical aspect, the swing. It's another thing to work on the hitting approach and identifying pitches and, and, and pitch selection and hitting the pitches that you want to hit. Um, so th th those are two examples, but it's no different for any other skill. Throw, you know, that's one of my biggest gripes about uh, showcases and showcase pop times. And I'm not going to get off on a tangent about that. But I think one of the problems is when kids are evaluated in showcases, they always say like, all right, here you go. I'm throwing you five. Get ready to throw. And the catch is prepared. And he cheats and he's uh, up. And, you know, again, we don't have to get in that entire discussion. And then when you get into a game, you don't. Now, hopefully, as a coach, we've done a good job preparing him with the baseball IQ and explaining when it's, what's a steal situation, what's a hit-and-run situation, so they can kind of prepare for it and expect it. Uh, but at the end of the day, you still don't know when the guy takes off until the pitcher and he starts running towards second base. So we have to be able to react uh, and recognize that. And we need to incorporate that into our training. I like the way you put that. I. And I'm, I'm thinking about some contextual ways or um, contextually specific ways that you could start to, to train some of this stuff. And if you're working on the technical aspects, like you said, it, it may be in a different environment um, slightly than what you're going to encounter in the game. But um, being here in the north, the sooner that you can get outside, the better, because you're going to the ball is perceived differently in an outdoor environment. But as far as just training reactivity and being able to react to pitches, um, catching, you know, you're 14 years old, catch some of the 16 you guys, catch some of the 17 you guys that are going to throw it a, a bit higher level, and it's going to force you to operate at a bit higher level. And then you're going to go back to those guys that are throwing seven miles an hour slower, and you're, you're just going to be that much better. I remember a couple of the better, the better catchers I played with they would always go up and like when they're 14 and catch the catch the high school guys like hey um in the eighth grade or seventh grade it was a great way for them to get in front of the coach but i'm in seventh grade eighth grade uh can i just help out in the bullpen like if you guys are throwing bullpens can i just help out and and catch some guys and um it challenged it certainly challenged them and then a lot of times for our pitchers we're having them do different um different things and you know, either crow hopping off the mound or short, throwing a short box. Um, and those things can be, you know, just to give them a little bit different uh, information. But I think a lot of times our catchers don't don't catch enough, um, you know, and they they spend their time doing static static drills or if they're doing anything at all, they spend their time doing static drills. And you got to perceive the ball like you're going to see it in the game. And if you can do that at a higher level, with with um, guys that are throwing faster, throwing game speed, that's a that's a useful tool. I don't know what your thoughts are, um, you know, on having guys try to try to catch pitches that they don't necessarily know what what pitch is coming, um, you know. But that would be a pretty advanced way as long as you feel like you can do it safely. Yeah, I would say I don't do much of that. Um, I, you know, I think for me, you always have to weigh the, the risk versus reward. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it is sure. really difficult when you get crossed up and when you don't know what's coming. So I, I know there are some coaches out there that, that experiment with that and they've tried it and they've implemented some of that. Um, and some guys have told me they have success. 
And I would say that's one of those things. Um, I'm still kind of in the wait and see type mode. I, I'm not the earliest adopter. Um, so I'm not going to say that I'm necessarily out there doing that, but I know there are guys who are doing it and they're saying they have good results from it. Um, it's not, again, it's not something that I've necessarily, uh, implemented yet, but, but, you know, I think if I were going to start doing that, I would probably start receiving incredibles or receiving some sort of, uh, right. high flight ball or a lighter ball, a, a ball just so that, um, you know, we, we, we always want to be super cognizant of injuries. Uh, again, not that we're, we're scared of getting Absolutely. hurt, but I think, but, but I, I am scared of getting hurt in a training environment by asking a guy to do something that he's not prepared to do. So I would never set up a machine that, that's pumping, you know, 90 mile an hour fastballs and 82 mile an hour sliders. Um, I think if you were going to try that, I would just say, Hey, just ease into it. Um, and maybe even set the machine further back. So instead of setting it at, at 50 feet, where a lot of times machines are set up, instead of setting it at 60 feet, hey, maybe in the beginning, maybe we set the machine at 70 or 75 feet so the player has a little bit more time to read and react, and then we can you know, gradually get a little bit closer or gradually make the, the, the movement a little bit sharper. Um, or behind but, but the screen. They, they could have have the guy behind the screen and, and have, have a strike zone on the screen, and then you have to react to it. I mean, you're not getting... You're not getting the full the full aspect of receiving, but you're still getting the the visual perceptual aspect of it of like, okay, boom, I'm trying to react to this or or react to that just to just to improve, you know, your visual perception skills and your ability to react mm -hmm. to to the pitches that like, as opposed to, you know, I think a lot of times it's like guys haven't trained their their visual system, so I'm just spitballing around. I I don't that's that's no, outside that of my wheelhouse, I guess, but. No, well that, well, that is a great drill, and I've seen that, and I've seen it used uh, with, with a lot of younger guys as well as they're trying new stances and they're trying yep. to get you know more comfortable. Um, I, I think it does a I think it does a couple things. One, you you can really overtrain with that with the speed with the velocity. You can you can really crank it up faster than what you might feel. So if you have a fifteen year old, you might not want to set the machine up. Uh, you know, at a hundred and have him receiving that. But Hey, if you wanted to over, uh, you know, set up a higher velocity as used to and, and have him receiving a hundred or get the reaction time of receiving a hundred. Yeah. You set up a screen in front of him or a net where the ball is not going to, not going to hit him. And he's just working the glove movement. Um, and it's a one that helps guys see more pitches and be able to react, but it's also a big confidence booster too, uh, particularly with young guys who uh, again, maybe, Maybe scared of a, hey you, you crank the machine up and you put it on on level ten and it's really coming in there hot. Uh, you know, a younger guy may not feel super comfortable, um, but you got a screen in front of him and, and now he's willing to try timing, um, and then you can gradually ease him into it. So, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of stuff like that. We're uh, we're hitting our uh, our time limit here. Um, I know you got I know you're a very busy man. Um, if you could do two things for me, number one, if you could provide where, where everybody can find you online, where they can follow you, because we have catchers that are listening to this. And I know we have a lot of coaches um, in particular who are listening to this and they need access to, to your information. Sure. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I feel like I'm the easiest guy to get in touch with in the world. I try to reply to uh, all DMS and private messages and, and emails I get. So uh, my main website is catching-101.com. That's where I have a lot of articles and, and drills and things like that. Um, I've got a number of other websites as well. One's CatcherCon. I put on a conference every December uh, for catchers and catching coaches uh, where I bring in a lot of the, a lot of the top catching instructors and they speak and, and we network and learn from each other. Um, and then on social media, Twitter, I'm really active. 
Parksdale, uh, Instagram. I'm a little bit less active, but it's uh, own home or go home. Um, but yeah, if you if you if you send me a message, there's a very high likelihood that I'll reply fairly fairly quickly. So uh, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Awesome, awesome. And the last thing um, that I'm going to ask of you is, could you give one thing to to leave our listeners with? as far as one thing they need to study, one thing they need to implement um, into their practice, or one thing they should start to think about um, as far as training catchers goes and getting catchers. Sure. To well, at, you know, at the highest level. Yeah, you got it. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So since you're a throwing guy and we, we definitely talked about throwing some, I, I want to give a, a throwing tip, a way that we can uh, maybe improve our training. I think for catchers specifically, there are really two very different aspects. Um, we, we, when we're trying to throw guys out at second base uh, and we're trying to improve our pop time and get more runners out, uh, th there's a couple different things to look at. One, it's the velocity and the arm strength. Uh, we absolutely should train guys to throw harder. Uh, you know, I think that's that's well documented in the pitching world. Guys are training to throw harder. I'm a firm believer that you know you don't just shy away from it. We should we should talk about it. We should work on it. We should have a a program in place that that it may look different for everybody. Uh, you know, but but arm care bands or plyo balls or um, uh, or. or prehab work or rehab work or recovery, um, you know, long, whatever. There's a lot of things that go into your throwing program, but the velocity side is absolutely very important and we should work on. On the flip side, there's also the other important aspect, which is the quickness, you know, the, the ability to exchange and release the ball in a short amount of time. Um, you know, one, because our arm path is short and compact, our feet are quick and efficient, um, and we're athletic and we're, we're able to move. Um, I, I think that one of the biggest problems I see is, you know, people will email me or they'll come to camp and say, hey, coach, what, how, what's the best throwing drill you got? And I'm like, oh, man, that's, that's you're setting me up here, setting it up on the tee. Because there's not one good throwing drill. I think you need to have drills that work on a very specific part of what you're trying to improve. So if we're trying to improve our throwing, uh, we don't just have general throwing drills. We have drills that improve our footwork. We have drills that improve uh, our, our exchange. We have drills that improve our arm path. We have drills that improve our arm strength. You know, there, there's all sorts of different components that are that are wrapped up into this throwing. Uh, and I'd really encourage guys to break it down and be specific as far as, hey, where can I improve? I know I need to throw better, but everybody needs to throw better. But specifically, what does that look like for you? For you, it may need to improve your footwork. Uh, for me, I may need to improve my exchange. Another guy may need to improve his velocity. And, and let's be honest, everybody needs to improve in every area, uh, but there are definitely areas that stand out um, and stick out as, as, you know, hey, there's a lot of room for improvement in this area for you. I may have a different area where I have a lot of room for improvement. So I would try to be super specific with what you're trying to work on and just make sure we're not doing general throwing drills, but we're breaking it down even further um, to where I'm, I'm working on this specific aspect, whether it be the arm strength or the exchange or the arm path or the release or the footwork or whatever it is. But don't just think of it in general throwing drills, but think of it much more specifically than that. Beautiful. Well put. Zan Barksdale, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. In the name of Overout Athletics, signing off.